With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 138. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, we have got a little announcement to make at the start of this week's show. Um, we have been saying that we are kind of rolling out the Retro Hour version 2.0. A uh, few little changes that we're going to make to hopefully make 2019 our biggest year yet. And actually, there was a little change that's just happened starting in this week's episode. Now, to be fair... It probably won't affect most people in the slightest at all. But we're essentially changing the way that the show gets delivered to your device. Yeah, so we're changing the RSS feed, which is... uh, Sounds very nerdy. Yeah, it's the kind of way that we get delivered the podcast. Now, that used to be done through SoundCloud, so we won't be using that service anymore. So you guys, you know, you won't be able to receive the show on there. But you'll still be able to get it on iTunes, Overcast, what is it, Google Play, Stitcher, Stitcher, all of the services. And... And you shouldn't really notice, because we're going to do it over the next couple of days, and it should be seamless. Yeah, I mean, the re- fingers crossed. Well, I mean, the reason for the change is, I mean, we've been with SoundCloud since uh, well, we started the show maybe three years ago now. Yeah. And they've been great, um, but then Audio Boom came along, which is our new provider, uh, offered to give us a bit of a helping hand. They've got some really talented people working there as well, so, you know, we essentially bit their arm off like you yeah, too, right? So it just means that, you know... To most people, it should be a pretty seamless automatic change. But if you have got, like, I know there are some people that listen on, like, um, Amipod or on the Amiga, for yeah, example, or, yeah, yeah. you know, Actually custom clients. directly with the feed, then yeah. you'll have to get the new feed off the site. Yeah, so we'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. And if you have maybe got some kind of obscure podcast clients that we don't know about, if anything breaks, uh, drop us a tweet at retrohour UK and we'll look into getting it fixed. But fingers crossed, like you said, it should be like an automatic changeover for most people. So, And we'll keep putting the show on SoundCloud until the end of the year. So it will be on there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. So even if people are still going there, we can gradually transfer them over. Yeah, I think the only people that will really affect is people that go directly to SoundCloud yeah. and listen on there. Which, and um, we're also going to try and change all the embeds on the website and stuff, so yeah. it should be updated. We'll try and make it as, uh, as painless as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we have got a lot of changes coming up over the next few months that are going to be really, like we said, uh, to really make 2019 the year that the Retro Hour podcast really, you know, takes off and uh, gets in front of more people. And the thing about it is, I think this time of year as well, now that we're into like the final quarter of 2018, I mean, we're recording this show at like half past seven at night and it's dark outside already. Well, that's <laughs> when people start gaming, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when well, the weather's bad and well, it's I was going to say that. It's like, you know, over the summer, it's traditionally a bit of a drought in terms of gaming news normally, isn't it, for summertime? Yeah, but um, we also get the events as well, yeah. which kind of helps balance that. But we did weather the summer out, I think. Uh, but in this week's show, uh, there are some really, really good news stories that we're going to talk about in just a minute, including the return of one of the best fighting games of all time. Finally got a sequel all these years later. The last time it came out was 1994. Rise of the Robots? Uh, <laughs> that was 94 as well, actually. Uh, thankfully not. And also a really cool way that you can get games on to an Atari 2600 that you would never dream about in a million years. So we'll talk more about those stories in just a minute. And of course, every week on the Retro Hour podcast, we bring you a really interesting special guest. And today, it's a movie maker. 
Yeah, so we've got Zachary Weddington, and we had Zach on actually on episode sixteen. Can you believe it? Like two and a half years ago. Two yeah. and a half years ago, and he was he released a great film called Viva Amiga, which is kind of celebration of Amiga. Now he's talking about everything, the whole history of arcades and coin-op amusements with his new film, Welcome to Arcadia. So we're going to be discussing this. You know, he's been talking with the head of Sega Amusements. They've been looking at all the old school machines but also they've been doing stuff like hiring a ferrari and driving around and recreating outrun in real life in real life yeah (laughs) well this is a celebration essentially of 100 years of arcades and i thought well arcades haven't been around 100 years have they and watch a trailer and there's all sorts of stuff on there like you know there's even a little clip of someone putting like a coin in like a metal ball came out this machine oh yeah stuff like that and i I guess there'll be loads of even pre-pinball kind of stuff so this film's currently in production and we're going to talk to him about the process and kind of what what you're expecting to see and this is one for the arcade heads this week's show then isn't it and also um bill winters our good friend who's a uh, he's a professional cinematographer and he's done the photography on this yeah he's director of photography so he's actually doing all the filming and everything and uh this is going to be a very high-end documentary. I can't wait to watch it. Looks beautiful from the trailer, doesn't it? So we're going to be talking to Zachary Weddington. He will be our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we did say we're getting towards our third birthday, which uh, still kind of blows my mind that we've been going for nearly three years. When we did this, I thought, oh, we might do a month or two, see how it goes. But yeah, we are three years later. God, madness. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of stuff coming up, but we do appreciate the only reason that we can keep doing the Retro Hour podcast week in, week out, is thanks to the the people who find it in their hearts to make a donation into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. And that will qualify you for a place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, the way you make the Hall of Fame is just by making a little donation, isn't it? Yeah, just chuck it in the jar. It could be any about any currency. Uh, we don't mind, and it just helps kind of keep the show going. Yeah, so it's a tip jar. That's what we say every week. And you can do that via PayPal or cryptocurrency. If you're into that, you'll find those links on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. And you'll get a shout in the Hall of Fame on a future episode, just like... Ian Roberts. Nim- <laughs> I'm probably going to completely butcher this one. Nimania Smiljanic. Gareth McKee. And John Martirana. All my donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast, and you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Will you try in the next? Well done, Dan, yeah. (laughs) We do try our best. Yeah, we don't mean to cause any offence. We do look up some of them in uh, in YouTube's pronunciation, which uh, in the past has actually made it like 10 times worse. That's the thing, because we get donators from all over the world, so these are lots of kind of names that we've never said before, so trying to get those words out is... Always a challenge. Yeah, hopefully we'll give you a bit of a giggle at least. Yeah. All right, then let's get into this week's news stories. We did mention that there is the return of a legendary game. Anyone that was a Sega fanboy back in the day, this is on pretty much every Sega fan's top ten list at the very least, isn't it? I'm really surprised that I've not heard about this in news on retro sites or anywhere else. Uh, it's a new Streets of Rage game. What? Can you believe it? You're right, because... This news actually broke the day after we recorded last week's show. Okay. We'd have been all over it last week if, uh, if it had come out then. But you're right, there hasn't been, considering the last, you know, Streets of Rage 3, there have been, like, you know, the, the remakes and stuff like that that have come out. Like, like some indie games and yeah, fan stuff. Yeah, it was a fan yeah, remake okay. and stuff. But the last, like, instalment in the series came out in 1994. Wow. And, and they've remade it. So um, uh, you played me the trailer earlier. Well, this is something that dropped last week. Um, and... It is essentially just a little, like, 50-second trailer. Now, the team behind it, um, they're called .mu, and it is officially, you know, it's a Sega product endorsed mm. by them as well. And looking at it, they've give you um, what is mostly 
cutscenes from the game, but there is maybe about a second and a half or two seconds of gameplay in there too. The I, biggest difference is the style of the graphics. Yeah, it's this kind of cartoony HD look that you get at the moment with games. Well, it's like uh, comic book style, isn't it? Comic book style, yeah. And I don't know, this is either going to please some people or really annoy other people. Like, they've also grown them up a little bit. I noticed Axel's grown a beard. <laughs> I, I didn't think he could grow a beard in the original game. <laughs> well, it, it is like 25 years on. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Blaze has put a bit of weight on it. Yeah, there. a bit of weight. Yeah, so. <laughs> but it is, I mean, getting a new Streets of Rage game, I think it probably is quite a dangerous thing to do. It is because there was so classic and like yeah. every part of it, the artwork, the mu- music, you know, everybody has memories of those. But then, you know, good on them for going out there and kind of blazing ahead with a, a different style, you know. You have to really have some um, guts to do that, don't you? Well, the team behind it are the same team that did uh, Wonder Boy the Dragon's Trap, which was a bit like that. I mean, I've seen probably about 50-50 looking at YouTube comments and looking at Reddit and that kind of thing. Some people saying, I love the kind of you know comic book style artwork. It reminds me a bit of you know the, um, the Street Fighter HD anniversary edition that yeah. came out a couple of years ago. It's kind of that kind of style. Then a lot of other people are saying, why didn't they go down the Sonic Mania pixel art kind of route? But again, that, you can't please everyone. And then, you know, they've released mainly kind of cutscenes. There's yeah. like a, a millisecond of gameplay in there. So, you know, it could play amazingly well. You never know. I think that is the most important thing, isn't it? If it plays well, um, I think you know you kind of get past the graphics pretty quick. Yeah, you know when you played it for like after a minute or two, you're kind of used to them. But aren't if you? if like the collision detection's bad and stuff like that, you're gonna have hell. Yeah, and looking at the trailer, I mean they've only shown like Axel's gameplay in there, um, but also I mean it does kind of go back to that kind of late. Looking at it, it is capturing that late eighties kind of punk rock, cyberpunk kind of yeah, style. Yeah, and like there's so many things to consider in that game, like what are the specials going to be like, yeah. what are the bosses going to be like, you know, uh, what what are the weapons going to be like? There's so so many changes that you could do. So there might be new features. Imagine a flamethrower in it or something, you know. And of course, one of the most important bits about Street of Rage, either music. Oh yeah, you always need a pumping beat. Well, there is a little bit of music in the trailer. I mean, from what I've seen on Reddit, a few people are like, that's just a placeholder. It's not going to be like the final soundtrack. Okay. So, I mean, this is what's in the trailer at the moment. Not quite as pumping as the previous No, no, you need a bit of techno. There you go. A bit rocky, actually, compared yeah, to the yeah. old ones. But, um, yeah, apparently there are, there are going to be, like, you know, some new soundtracks. No, they were released well. in the 90s, weren't they? So, well, a I bit think, of techno know, in everything. I think my favourite one was, like, Streets of Rage 3. That had a proper pumping yeah, techno yeah. soundtrack, didn't it? Uh, but, I mean, Streets of Rage coming back. How often on this podcast have we said... What games do we want new remakes of and new installments? Streets of Rage has been at the top of the list. So. All we need now is that Golden Axe, yeah. the proper version of that doing. Um, at the moment, there's no release date. There's no real like, indication of what platforms it's going to be released on. I mean, I'd imagine it'll come out on all the main platforms. Yeah. And hopefully the Switch as well. And it'll probably would... be like a Steam release or something. I'd imagine. I mean, uh, .me, the team behind this, they generally do, you know, Mac, Linux, um, PC, Steam, that kind of stuff. So I'm sure it'll come out on like pretty much every major platform. But we'll keep an eye on that. When we get a release date, we'll let you know. And if you want to check the trailer out for yourself, we'll put that in the show notes, along with the rest of this week's stories at theretrohour.com. Now, we've got a story submitted by a listener, Seth. Yeah, so Seth submitted this on the website, and this is actually Robinson Technologies, which is, I, I recognise that name. What about supporters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robinson Technologies. So this is an absolutely crazy concept. They basically have uh, these QR codes where you can, you know, you can share information or you can share kind of images on them or links, and they can be scanned with a, a phone or 
a kind of a camera, basically. Well, those little square things you see in the corner of posters and things like, you know, put your phone over it and it takes you to yeah. a website or something like that, yeah. doesn't it? Or download an app. Well, well, Robinson Technologies have kind of worked out that you can store a whole Atari game on one of these uh, QR codes. And they're basically, they've created an interface using a Raspberry Pi. Now, this is crazy. It hooks up to an emulator and it uses the Raspberry Pi camera. Yeah. And then he's built this kind of 3D custom case where you can slide your QR code into it and it will read the QR code and then directly launch it into an emulator. Now, I think this, if you kind of built with a Raspberry Pi interface, may be able to be done on the original hardware. Yeah, well, uh, the thing is, I guess if you, you could interface it via a flash cart or something, I'd imagine. Yeah, and he's calling them paper carts. And they look pretty cool. The design that he's done, I mean, they look a bit like... Uh, they've got the, you know, the, the text at the top that's quite similar to the original Atari game. And then you have the QR code underneath. It kind of reminds me of, like, old trading cards or something like that. Yeah, and, you know, these games are harder and rarer to get at the moment. Yeah. So you can actually print off quite a lot of these QR codes and get this device and just start loading them yourself. He's laminated them as well, so that gives them quite a cool little look. Um, so I mean, QR codes, they essentially are... They're like, well, he calls them on here. They're like 2D barcodes, essentially, aren't they? Yeah, because I remember they used to have like loads of silly art projects and stuff in the city, and they'd be like, take a QR code off this building and then go around here, and they'd try and invent a game. But now loading games off QR codes, that's cool. <laughs> well, looking at this, they're saying they can store um, 2.9 full bytes. So that is, I mean, obviously some Atari 2600 games are a bit bigger than that. So what you're saying is, what's also really cool is, you can actually load the game in installments. So you could have a double-sided QR code paper cart, show the first side to it, it'll load half the game, pause it, turn it around, look at the other <laughs> side, then it'll load the full game in. That's amazing. And you know, he's just he's also provided an image here where you could just write it, and it's got SSH login, so you can remotely log in and kind of change any features you want. The thing is, he does say in the end of this video, if you want to build one yourself... I'll put all the details in the video, all the links and everything are in there. He goes, but I can't see why anyone would want to, <laughs> yeah. which is, I mean, got there's so much easier ways to load Atari 2600 ROMs, but I've never seen anything as cool as that. No, that, <laughs> is, that is really cool. It's these fan projects that make retro interesting, isn't it? Yeah, these kind of proof of concepts. I love them. Mi yeah. Mixing old and new technology. Well, you love that if back in the day you could copy games just by using the photocopier at school. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check that video out, that will be in this week's show notes as well. Now, handhelds have been quite a running theme on this podcast recently. Yeah, we've been covering quite a lot. Of, uh, we, we got quite a few good comments about the awful one we covered last week. So. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on from that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got a beautiful one that we can cover this week, and this is the Odroid. And I don't know if you've heard of the Odroid. Well, that was like a Raspberry Pi single board computer that came out. We're celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. 10th anniversary. Anniversary, can yeah. you believe it? And this this device is really powerful. You know, you can emulate Game Boy games on there and all of the kind of systems NES you can emulate on there. But but what they're providing now is they're providing a little kit, which is absolutely amazing. It's got the 10th anniversary Odroid board in there. Yeah. But it comes with, you know, a Game Boy style case. It comes with all the little bits and you kind of build it yourself. And this kit's incredibly cheap. It's like $35 for the whole thing with the um, Odroid board as well. So you get the Odroid, you get, like you said, I mean, it does look again like a Game Boy. Um, I bet Nintendo wish they, like, you know, patented that look. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Because everything seems to use it now, doesn't it? Uh, but that's the thing. 
a lot of people recently have been like, I, I saw this the other day on Reddit, there's like a, a long thread running, people saying, you know, Nintendo rebooting other consoles, will they do a rebooted Game Boy? And I don't think they ever will. No. I think it's going to be down to fan projects like this. But again, you've got a really nice LCD screen in there as well. And the thing about the Odroid is, they also... It's not just the system for running software. They also encourage development and learning programming. And I guess with this environment, you could actually make your own little handheld games. And so. it's also got like um, uh, pinouts on the top. So you could do stuff with Arduinos. You could kind of, uh, you know, have little temperature readers. You could add loads of stuff in there. See, I would have loved something like this when I was a kid. Because um, we've talked before on the show about, you know, I used to do like electronics at school, amateur electronics, and we build up like Morse code radios and, yeah. and little FM receivers and little transmitters and that kind of thing. But I think, you know, that kind of seemed like something that kind of phased out a bit in like the 90s and the last decade. Like, you know, kids learning electronics and stuff at home. So I think these kind of little like, you know, single board computers and the things you can add onto them kind of, it does kind of bring that back. Yeah, that's what I'd love if I had kids and they were like, Dad, I want to play a game. I'd be like, okay, build it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to make your own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See you in 10 years. Now, speaking of cool little handheld systems, of course, if you don't want to make your own, uh, we do love the Nintendo Switch, another system that we cover quite a bit. Because the Switch, it does have a lot of retro games on there as well. Yeah, and there's I- a lot of crossover, isn't there? Now I've been playing on there, you know, the uh, the flashback, um, anniversary version of flashback, which yeah, has actually got a really good feature in there that you can rewind the game if you oh, die nice. in it, which <laughs> some people might think is a bit lame. Um, but for a game that, you know, where you die, you get one life, and you haven't got time to start all over again these days, it's quite useful. been playing Another World on there recently too. Um, a load of classic games out on the Nintendo Switch, including, we did talk a minute ago about Street Fighter. It's got a really good version of Street Fighter 2 on there as well. But obviously the best way to play those games is with a proper arcade stick. Oh, totally. Like, all of those consoles used to have support for arcade sticks. Like, uh, God, the amount of Dreamcast sticks that you see sold everywhere and Saturn and stuff like this. Well, it's time the Switch got one, and it actually has got one now by 8-Bit Do, who are really cool. 8-bit kind of company and this thing looks huge doesn't it i guess, I guess it's because it's next to the switch <laughs> i was gonna say it is actually about double the size of the switch when you've got it in handheld yeah, mode, you're not gonna it? carry that around on you. it would be cool on the train in though, your pocket on the commute to work in the morning wouldn't it all right it's clear clear everyone's bags and sandwiches off the table <laughs> yeah. uh, but i mean again it's proper arcade buttons i love the styling on it as well so it does kind of remind me of like that old kind of nes styling yeah, yeah, and, the, and the also it's, it's not limited to the Switch. This, this works with Steam, works with the Raspberry Pi, Mac, Android and Windows as well. Yeah. So. And it does look, I mean, really high quality as well. It's got that um, SNES look. Is, I, I didn't know if it was NES or SNES. I thought it was more original Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's original Nintendo. You've got the red buttons as well, like you did on yeah. the original Nintendo yeah. D-pad and stuff. Um, but they are saying, you know, it, it is proper arcade parts in there. It is a wireless. You can play it over Bluetooth. Um, or USB as well. So the thing about it is you can use it on a lot of devices and you probably wouldn't want to play it on handheld on the Switch too often, but you can docky switch, put it on the telly. Yeah, and it's battery powered as well, so you could do it on the train, Dan. (laughs) For 18 hours, actually. (laughs) Next time you do uh, Nottingham to Glasgow, there you go. What one of these out on the train? I just want to see how big it gets if you have like four people with these huge arcade (laughs) things. That would be great. See, the Switch can support four players via Bluetooth. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Someone's going to do a YouTube video on that, I'm <laughs> sure. Uh, but I do love a proper arcade stick. I mean, I've got one for the Dreamcast. Um, you know, the one with the... It's got green fire buttons. You can put the VMU in the top as well. Yeah, oh, I, I just love the sound of micro switches yeah. and kind of that experience of gaming at the kind of arcade. I know it all came home and stuff and we had control pads, but it never felt the same, did it? No, I mean, there is something 
that you can't really emulate using a control pad. That's always a thing, you know, if you're playing MAME games, um, stuff you played in the arcade back then, they always just feel wrong using mm. like an Xbox pad or something like that. But having a proper arcade stick, it is one step closer to being in the arcade. I mean, I was watching, we were talking before we, um, we started recording this week about Steve Benway, mm. who's uh, a YouTuber who, he was probably one of the first retro gaming YouTubers I watched. He was like the king of YouTube. He, Steve Benway used to cover... He had every system, yeah. and he used to cover them in depth, like hour-long videos. Yeah, and he did the Friday talkies yeah. um, videos. He's actually brought back recently that are just like interesting. Sometimes an hour, two-hour-long rants about stuff. How he does it off the top of his head, I've got no idea. But he did do one the other day, all about like you know Mame and whether mm. it kind of fits in with his memories of the arcade. And for him, he said it. You know, the thing about the arcade was the fact that you would have such limited amount of time and money to play the game, and that kind of the experience of that's kind of taken away when you get home and you're playing it, you've got unlimited credits and all that. And again, yeah, I you, suppose you were like, I've only got this pound, I've really yeah. got to make this matter. And then you really focused on it. So it seemed like more of a thing. And you had like, you know, about 20 kids around you who'd laugh at you if you, if you died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you, you know, I think he did mention also about the fact that if you're playing it on an Xbox pad or a, or a, you know, a USB keyboard or something, it's, again, it's one step removed from what the arcades were. Mm. But I think having these proper arcade sticks... Unless you build an arcade cabinet at home, it's probably the nearest thing that most of us are going to get to, isn't it? So. I don't feel right when I play these games and I have to push a button down. Yeah. You know, like a button to lift something or, or one of these like action banging games. I need a joystick to waggle up and down or just hit on the table or something, you know. You always do smack arcade buttons a lot harder than you would anything oh, else. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that on them, yeah. Kids hang it off them. That was, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they're designed to take a bashing, weren't they? So, yeah, if you want to find out more about that, of course, that will be in the show notes this week as well. Um, but yeah, I'm a big fan of arcade sticks. I mean, they are the... Some games are just made for them and like they don't feel right with anything else, do they? No. Now, we'll get more into arcades in just a minute when we chat to this this week's special guest, Zachary Weddington. Uh, before then, we want to give a shout out to um, a good friend of ours. We're actually on his live stream last week, weren't we? Yeah, we were at his launch party, which yeah. was kind of um, for his project. We've mentioned this before, and it's absolutely fantastic project. So this is a kind of old school desktop computer, a modular design, retro inspired computer case, and it's kind of based around the Amiga 3000, but it can be used for any machine. You can put Raspberry Pi in there. You can put PC in there. I'm sure you could hack some mad boards and put them in there, you know. Well, this is Stephen Jones we're talking about. Um, we did have him on about maybe about six weeks ago, didn't we, yeah. talking about this? Um, but the Kickstarter's launched, and at the moment it's doing pretty well. Yeah, he's halfway through nearly, isn't he? He's yeah. uh, on a 34 at the moment, and it's a £77,000 goal. So. We're recording this on Wednesday night, and yeah. the live stream well, the launch was last Wednesday, wasn't it? So, you know, in a week, that's pretty good going. On the first night, I think it was like cropping up to like over ten grand, wasn't it? And he was like, whoa. Well, yeah. the thing is, these cases, like, you know, usually when you hear Amiga, you, you think, God, expense. But these cases, mm. it's, it's around £159. Uh, yeah. With the um, ever-slipping pound as well. That's good for international people as well, so... Yeah, and you can put anything in there. I mean, if you want... Um, you know, he was saying that some of the retro PC market people have been in touch with him. Because, um, you know, most cases you get today, unless you go down the, the media kind of PC route, they're all towers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, the towers took over, didn't they? And yeah. uh, kind of desktop's gone. And I, I miss that period, to be honest. It was it was nice. Putting your big CRT on top of a... Balancing yeah, the computer. Pizza box machine. And, like, the Amiga 3000 was a cool-looking machine. It's like, you know, it had that... They called it pizza box, didn't they, the look? Yeah, That's kind yeah. of what it was. But also, like... Steve, he's doing some absolutely crazy things with it that were mentioned on the stream that we didn't talk about before. So there's stuff like if you, 
he's got a Raspberry Pi that he's putting in there, and he's going to have one of the screen modes of the Pi is going to be accessible via the Amiga. Right. If you press the Amiga and M key to right. <laughs> change the screen mode, so you'll be able to switch between them. And there's going to be stuff like amazing little hacks for power sharing and using ATX power supplies on the Amigas. So there's going to be some stuff that kind of the Amiga guys haven't seen for years yeah. and cheap solutions as well. Well, you mentioned there about that screen flipping thing. So you could be playing Canon for there. Oh, hang on. Um, hold down these two keys on the keyboard. I'll just check Chrome a minute. Check me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I've backed it and I'm going to get one. I'm thinking of probably building a really cool emulation machine in there or something. I haven't quite decided yet, but I just want one because it looks so cool. Yeah, it, it does look awesome. And Steve, I mean, he's been in the Amiga community for like, God, like 30 years, if not you, more. You know, back in the days, right, I used to go to these Amiga events and you'd have all these companies that would come up and they'd be like, oh, this is the future, this is our great product, and everyone would be buying it and, you know, kind of getting into it. And then Steve would come up and be like, they're liars, I talked with them last week, this is the <laughs> truth. And it, the man's always been on it. He's in great. Yeah, he always said it like it is. And, uh... I mean, he's a guy who, I mean, if you watch Retro Manke's video with him, um, it was a really interesting chat, actually. You know, he, he kind of, his devotion to it was that much. He, like, he went through some pretty hard times because of the Amiga. Yeah. And the fact that he's back now and loves it again, I mean, it's obviously a you know, project of passion for him, which is really cool. So we do say, if you want to get a really cool-looking case and just support a guy who's like really looks after the retro community and loves it, uh, we'll put a link to the Kickstarter. And everything else we talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. So thank you for checking us out. Uh, please do leave a review on your podcast client of choice uh, fingers crossed the RSS feeds will have crossed over if you need any help to do that manually uh, we'll have that on our website as well and now let's talk all about arcades with this week's special guest Zachary Weddington You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's special guest. We haven't spoken to this guy for quite a while on the show, actually, so it's great to catch up again. Welcome back to the Retro Hour podcast, Zachary Weddington. Hey, guys. What's up? <laughs> now, the last time we spoke um, was when Viva Amiga just came out a couple of years back. And, um, you know, Ravi and I, obviously, everyone that listens to this show knows we're big fans of the Amiga. What, what did you learn from making that film then? And what was it like after the movie got released? Oh, it was crazy. After it got released, um, just seeing some of the number one spots that we hit around the world uh, on iTunes for documentary, like that was huge. Um, the, the whole film just wound up being a much bigger deal than I thought it was going to be at the beginning. And then after the release came out, just, you know, seeing the response and seeing the positive reviews was, you know, it changed my life. Making the movie really changed my life. And yeah, I, I learned a whole lot. I basically, I don't know if, how much you guys know about me, but yeah, I've worked in film and TV pretty much my whole life not really as a director producer of a whole documentary. So this was kind of my first big one. And just to be able to take a film from an idea all the way to these final details of the distribution and release, it was, you know, you feel like I can do anything now. So I'm going to give it another shot. Well, I was going to say that. I mean, after you know all the work you put into that film, a lot of people would sit back and be like, oh, I'll take a breather for a bit now. Uh, but not you, Zach. You're <laughs> actually doing another one. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you get addicted. You get addicted to seeing people so happy. Um, you know, like we're still doing Viva Amiga shows. We got invited to show at this incredible venue, the Henry Ford Museum wow. in Michigan, you know, which is a legendary museum of American innovation. And they had an IMAX screen where we showed Viva Amiga on an IMAX screen. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, uh, that was just a couple of months back. But I mean, talk, I mean, talk about 
bigger than I ever expected. We 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 took it to IMAX. You know what I mean? I never thought I'd see an Amiga movie on Amazon as well. So that's fantastic that you got it distributed on these networks. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was amazing, guys. Well, let's talk about Welcome to Arcadia. That's what we're talking about this week. Your new movie. Um, first of all, why do we need a new film about arcades? Then you know, I think there's a few reasons. Um, first of all, what I can see right now is that there's a resurgence, in, uh, you know, of arcades you know, going on, at least in America, and I've heard about it in Europe, too, where people are interested in going out to play games again. Um, we've got this whole barcade scene here in the United States where, you know, they combine a pub with with an arcade and people just love it. And um, I think that there's a whole lot of history there that, you know, people younger than us just have no idea about. So we want to we want to we want to talk about that history and we want to we want to trace the evolution of the arcade through like the 20th century, early 20th century up until now. That's that's the goal of Arcadia. Uh, We've certainly noticed when we go to retro gaming events, um, the main attraction is the arcades and everybody's drawn to there and spend the main amount of time there actually and pinball well we did an well. event like yeah about two or three weeks ago didn't we and it was like the, the amount of kids you see on the arcades as well i know i love seeing how into these you know very simplistic games that kids are i you know i thought that with where we are with technology that some of those primitive games just wouldn't really hold their interest but they do i was just at, a, at another two or three weeks ago i was at this neon festival where we did our final showing of Viva Amiga. And, of course, yeah, it was a big retro festival with games, merchandise, and all kind of stuff. But, of course, they had a big arcade, too. And people were just all over those games. Well, I think each person has their own kind of era of arcades that they remember. Like, my arcade experience would be very different from someone who was born a lot earlier. Um, Were all these eras going to be covered in the film? Yeah, you can trace. I mean, we talked about uh, breaking things down into sections um, recently with with a couple people. You know, you can almost go like pre-war, post-war, up until the seventies, and then from the seventies up until now. Like in terms of technology and the way games were, like those are some divisions that you can draw. You know, um, we want to take it back to the or- origins of arcade machines. Do you guys know what trade stimulators are? Uh, no. Yeah, now this is interesting. Trade Simulator is a machine that's a game, right? It's small, it's, it's, and it's purely mechanical. It sits on a desktop. And you used to find these machines in bars and speakeasies back in the olden days. And um, also, you know, stores to where, you know, it's basically like gambling. And you're playing this little machine, which sometimes could be pinball-like, or it could be like a, it's a little slot machine-like. They're really interesting machines, and you could play those to win prizes, which would be like cigars or free drinks or merchandise at a trade store, you know? And as far as I can see, in terms of what we think of an arcade machine now, that's kind of where it begins. Because a lot of people think, like, oh, Pong was the first arcade machine, but looking at the, you know, the teaser trailer for your film, yeah, like, you know, the stuff on there that goes back, like, half a century before that. even farther, you guys. I mean, yeah, I, I... through, you know, I've been I've been visiting different uh, uh, vintage arcade machine collectors uh, for this film, and you know the stuff they have is like from the twenties, 
And, um, you know, it's <laughs> what I'm discovering as, as I trace this arcade history, it's kind of like the manufacturers keep making the same games over and over, but with just new technology. I, I always hear about amusements and kind of when I when I think of like Victorian entertainment and all the old kind of uh, machines then, um, what's the difference between amusements and arcades then? Or is there a difference? Well, um, I think that these amusements, you know, um, the, the arcade was not the place where you went to go play these games. Like I said, it was it was machines that you'd find in another place. And they would be amusement and kind of gambling too, you know. And then, of course, there's there's other ones that are purely for amusement, like old, you know, like old, um, like uh, you know, there's there's movie watching devices that you know that show like little short reels of film. Those those we want to talk about. And um, yeah, and I, I think I'm still in the research phase. I want to understand kind of how these games wound up being taken out of places like bars and then put in a place where you're just there to play games. You see, there was an evolution that happened there. And part of the research of film, I want to discover like how that how that really happened to where arcade is its own place. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think, you know, Ravi made an interesting point there as well about everyone's kind of personal experience with, you know, when they started going to arcades. I mean, for me, it was kind of the late 80s to like mid 90s really was kind of my peak time for going to arcades. And here in Britain, it was always at the uh, the coast, the seaside where you went to arcades. Yeah. And I remember going yeah. there playing stuff like, you know, Operation Wolf and Golden Axe and uh, Oh, of course. Double I mean, Dragon. yeah, I grew up in those. I mean, I'm a video arcade fanatic. I still go to video arcades as often as I can. And I basically grew up in them. I own a couple of cabinets. I was always a huge Sega fan. So, of course, they're going to be getting a lot of uh, attention in this film. But, yeah, you know, the, it is broken down in areas. Uh, the people that collect arcade machines, they're very specific about the, you know, the time periods that they focus in. Like talking to um, these guys who collect, you know, what are, we would call like electromechanical machines and mechanical arcade machines, like they don't want anything to do with the video, really. Like they don't find those interesting because it really wasn't their childhood. And likewise, you know, like – most people my age, we just think of video games. They have no idea about these other, you know, categories of arcade machine. They don't even know that they even exist. So I'm kind of want to bring these worlds together a little bit so everybody can learn, you know, about other parts of arcade history that they may not have grown up with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because uh, Dan's experience may be the seaside, but I lived in a city where we had a big local fun fair, the biggest one in Europe. So we had completely oh, okay. different experience where we had like fortune telling machines and uh, stuff yeah. like that. Like on big. <laughs> or those little horse races where they um, have the mechanical horses. Right. And people bet on right. Those. Yeah. I mean, those are fascinating and they look amazing on film. They're so fun to shoot. I think a lot of those kind of dated from like the Victorian era over here. So yeah, you're going back like late 18th yeah. century. I mean, what are kind of some of the uh, most innovative early arcade machines that you've seen, and how did you find these people and get access to them? Okay, uh, yeah, a couple, uh, yeah, couple points there. Um, I guess really my my uh, intro to finding out more of these really vintage games was when I became friends with a guy named John Torrance. Now, he assembled the largest collection of antique arcade machines ever, all right? He spent, he spent some years doing this, and um, I, you know, I was searching for um, Sega history online, right? I wanted to find out about the history, you know, what were the earliest Sega arcade machines? And, you know, I came across his collection, which he had posted online, where 
it had these, you know, a purely mechanical Sega arcade games. And, you know, quite frankly, I just never knew about that part. And um, I reached out to him and uh, he said, hang on, I'll get back to you in a few months. I, w- I want to work with you. So he-, he got back and told me that he was selling his collection. And how would we like to film this big auction out in Las Vegas, right? <laughs> so, of course, we jumped on it. I hadn't even planned to really start shooting yet, but I was like, we can't miss this. So I got with Amiga Bill, who I know that you guys know, who was part of Viva Amiga. He's an incredible camera guy. He's a director of photography. And um, I brought him on board to shoot. We went out to Vegas and captured so many of these bizarre really rare, you know, really valuable um, arcade machines and also spoke with John, who is a collector and also um, had been, a, you know, like a arcade operator and a vending machine operator, you know, in his early career. So, I mean, yeah, that was an incredible shoot. And that's the guy you see in the film with the Ferrari and everything. <laughs> in the teaser trailer, I mean, yeah. he, he he's a real character, but I mean, yeah. I think it's I think it's the Sega stuff. There were there were two machines um, in particular that we saw at John Torrance's auction that we filmed pretty heavily. One of them is called Sega Jumbo. And this is one of the most amazing games you guys will ever see. You have to look it up. And actually, I could send you a little teaser of this game um, in specific. You control this elephant, right, with these with these knobs and gears so that the elephant raises his trunk, shoots a beach ball in the air, right? Okay, as if that weren't hard enough. And then you have to land it in this little basket that's moving around. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at it up now. Yeah, we've got we've got it up here. From 1970, this was an electromechanical machine. So, yeah, no no mean no video involved. It's like, yeah, it's it's all it's all gears, electricity, magnets, and springs, all that crazy stuff. And yeah, it's one of the and it's one of the most beautifully designed artistic things I've ever seen. And I was like, wow, no wonder I've always liked Sega. I really feel like they were always on the cutting edge. That one's really cool. And then um, you've got Sega Gunfight, which inv- which involves a shooting match with these two cowboys, and you're trying to line it up and shoot the gun, and and, and things happen like cactuses blow apart and like you know <laughs> you can you can see when the cowboy gets hit his whole body shakes and falls i mean it's wild it's wild and so seeing that stuff just just blew my mind and i'm glad i got with with john you know uh and, and captured this stuff and then um also i want to say yeah i've met another collector here who's actually local to me his name is bruce and i went over to his house the other day and played what is it moto champ sega's moto champ now you guys know what hang on super hang on is yeah, of course yeah, right yeah, yeah well imagine a mechanical version that's basically what it is it's like okay let's take let's take the hang on you know motorcycle guys and they're they're little figurines and you're trying to race around these other drivers and uh, yeah the machine detects when you collide with another you know uh, little figurine i mean it's it's cool and it just kind of made me realize, like, oh, wow, these guys have been making kind of the same iteration of games over and over, even before there was video. But it, it, it was yeah. a decade before, you know, like video games. But 1973, this was. Um, oh, yeah. And you can go back farther and then see yeah. basically what we think of as a primitive video game today. And there's an electromechanical version. You know, there's baseball games that operate this way where you swing, you know, you move this guy to swing, you know, to swing the bat and... um you know, the machine can detect your score depending on which holes the ball falls in. 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I so far, think... I mean, because I know video games and I love them and I've thought about them forever, but this electric mechanical stuff has really been inspiring to me, especially. One day you're going to come across a version of Doom somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It'll be out there. <laughs> well, I mean, there have been you know, lots of documentaries made about pinball. Well, of course we have to talk about pinball. And, you know, I want to have a special chapter in the film all about it. Um, I, yeah, pinball was still pretty hot when I was around five or six, you know, early 80s. Um, but, you know, um, I, as soon as uh, arcade, you know, video arcade machines came along, I was pretty much sold on that. Um, I think that pinball is just part of the story, you know. Stories about arcades, not just the machines. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We want to talk about, like, why do people gather in a place to have a good time playing these games? So it goes beyond just the machines, you know. Because I remember, you know, even when I first started going to them, I mean, there was a certain kind of the ambience of going to an arcade. It was like maybe, you know, like a, a combination of the sounds of all the machines in there as well. A unique kind of smell. You always got the kind of like oxygen smell in the air off all the CRT <laughs> monitors and yeah. stale mm. cigarette smoke as well. It's, it, yeah. it is very, I mean, you know, there were unique places, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And you can't, you know, that's something you just can't really recreate at home no matter how hard you try. You get, you know, it's 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 something about going away from home to a place to play, and um, that's that's what I that's that's why arcade arcade games will always be my favorite. You know, well, are there kind of like central points where arcades are based around the U.S.? You mentioned Las Vegas, there. I guess that's a place with lots of amusements. So, there are there any other places with huge collections of arcades and stuff? Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't really know this, I, and and you know, um, some people might correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, as far as I can see, really the home of arcades and arcade machines as we know it is Chicago, right? Because if you look at the pinball manufacturers um, like Stern, and you've got Bally, Chicago Coin, there's a whole bunch. They're, they're, it's all based out of Chicago, and and part of. Part of what I'm trying to figure out in, in studying this stuff is why, you know, why Chicago, um, you know, I'm sure you guys know who R.J. Michael is. Yeah, he used to work, you know, he's actually from Chicago. He likes to pretend like he's from California. He's from Chicago, and he used to work at Williams, mm -hmm. which I'm sure I, you guys know is a you know arcade machine, you know, manufacturer and designer. You know, he's he was of course part of Sinistar, had to do with Robotron. So, you know, he's actually from that world, and it, it all traces back to Chicago. So um, that's actually our next major shoot that we're planning right now is a whole Chicagoland shoot, and there's a bunch of stuff that we're going to get there. Well, you know, when I was a kid, my dad actually used to be the landlord in a pub um, for a few years. So we grew up, and, I mean, we did have arcade machines in our pub. Uh, but also we had... Oh, with, awesome. Yeah, well, which was like, you know, you're the coolest kid at school having that. Uh, but we also oh, had yeah. fruit machines as well. And I always remember being, you know, really drawn to fruit machines. Cause, I mean, I'm really bad at them, but I love the lights and the effects and the sounds of those as well. I mean, do you kind of feature fruit machines and gambling units in this film as well? Are they a part of it? Well, you know, they are a part of the story and they're part of the arcade story because, um, you know, the, the mafia here in the States uh, had their hands in, of course, they've always had their hands in gambling and of course, they had their hands in arcade machines as well because there's a time where there really wasn't much of a difference. And so um, even if you look at um, companies like Bally, they made arcade machines and they made slot machines or fruit machines. It's the same company. So there's a real overlap with gambling. Now, I don't know, I don't know the full details of the story. It's, it's like a plot point that I want to uncover. But, you know, um, 
you know, there was there were there were even trials here in the States in New York um, where they were, um, you know, trying to get rid of all pinball machines because they saw that as gambling. They saw that as taking money from children. And then they knew the mafia had their hooks in it. So there's some drama there that I really want to mine, you know? Yeah, I always remember going to the arcades and there kind of being a bit of a, a dodgy element to it. Like, um, yeah. th- there was the fruit machines at the side and we were all too young to use them. But we they wouldn't could, let you pass them, would they? It was an over 18 yeah, only yeah, side. But yeah. we could sneak on a, another set of them and uh, there'd be people smoking cigarettes in there and stuff. And it was always kind of had this a bit of a dodgy vibe. I don't know if that was just my arcade. But, uh. <laughs> no, I think you're right there. And, <laughs> and I, I always think as well what was weird was what was kind of the distinction between gambling and not because the proper fruit machines here in the UK... You could never go on those. Those were over 18 only if you were a kid. But the one-armed bandits where you maybe put a 2P coin in or the, the coin shovers, you'd be allowed to go on those. Mm, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. So there, there's a fine line there, and I, I want to explore that, you know, and see, you know, and, and uh, yeah, see what the repercussions were because, I mean, it was a big deal, this, and, you know, these trials um, in the United States. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, and it's kind of like parents sending kids to uh, spend time in a dark room full of people smoking and gambling. (laughs) Quite strange. Different days. (laughs) It's all out the window now, Yankees. So, I mean, Ravi and I have kind of talked a bit about our history and our memories of arcades. What about you, Zach? What was kind of the arcade that you went to most as a kid and what games drew you to them? Oh, man, it was all... Any arcade I could go to, I would be there. The first one I really remember was in a shopping mall called Aladdin's Castle. And, you know, it was kind of like the best games of, you know, the early 80s in there at that time. Things like Paperboy, which I loved. And, you know, you had Sega Turbo, Kung Fu Master, Karate Champ. Um, They just had, you know, it was like all, all the best of the video era, you know, early eighties. And, and, um, yeah, that was, that's, I think the first arcade that I really remember, but I mean, yeah. And then, um, a couple years later I lived near a skating rink and of course they had a big arcade in there and you know, that was the place where I first saw outrun. Right. And for anybody who was an eighties arcade kid, everybody knows that's kind of like, a line drawn in the sand. <laughs> like video games have changed from Outrun on, in my opinion, because the graphics and the gameplay were just so phenomenal. I would remember just groups of kids were all just standing around watching people play that because we can't believe how amazing the graphics are and how fun it is. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I'd say that ice skating rink, um, the uh, Aladdin's Castle, I, you know, and being a Sega fan, I even made it over to Sega World in London in the 90s, you know. Oh, in the Trocadera. What'd you say? Yes, yes. That was an incredible yeah, place. <laughs> like, you know, that was like going to heaven for me. The, uh, at that time, it was kind of, I, you could tell maybe they were, they were, it was, it had started to run its course, but I was so glad to be able to see that. That was one of the coolest arcade experiences I've had for sure. But even if you go there now, I mean, it's kind of like uh, just little markets and like little weird shops and stuff, but they've still kind of got the staircase with the, the sonic rings around them and stuff. It's a bit sad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you, you mentioned Outrun there as well. And I, I remember when driving cabs came in and kind of hydraulics in uh, arcades. That was massively impressive (laughs) and such a change, wasn't it? Oh, man, that stuff was crazy. And you could see it was like they were – it just slowly got bigger and bigger. I know they had outrun cab that would, would, you know, turn and move. And then um, I'd say, yeah, like 
then um, what would be the next biggest one? I, I, I really find this game called Power Drift, which is almost kind of like a, a sequel to Outrun Away, where they take Outrun and just put it on steroids. That had a moving cabinet. And then I know I know what you guys are probably going to get to. Things like, of course, the R360. Yeah. It's like R3, G-Lock R360 where, yeah, you know, you can move 360 degrees in any direction. There has to be a full-time attendant on the game. And then, you know, that Some was mind-blowing. Some of the uh, Star Wars stuff as well was really good. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about the R360 because, I mean, that kind of, to me, shows what an innovative company Sega were back then. I mean, that was a machine that I remember seeing, you know, and I think they charged like about £2 to go on here when it came out, which was a lot of money. Because a lot of machines were like yeah. 20p or 50p back then. And it was more, it was kind of crossing that border between an arcade experience and a ride as well. For, for people who don't remember it, I mean, kind of describe what the R360 was. You know, it's kind of like an afterburner type jet fighting game, right? And you're, you, you sit in this big gyroscopic machine. Um, that, yeah, like I said, can rotate 360 degrees in any direction, upside down. And you've got this throttle control to, you know, to guide your ship. And you can you turn this throttle to move any way you like, upside down. You can hang upside down as long as you want to and do barrel rolls. You know, you do a, a barrel roll and you're, oh, the whole thing flips over. It was just out of control. I mean, I remember seeing that. I'm like... I'm like, does Sega feel like they have something to prove? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is ludicrous. It was like there was, a, there a was, a, there was an iteration right before it too called Galaxy Force, which is like basically kind of like Afterburner, where you're doing a, a, a you know, um, a, a spaceship. Now that would go 360 degrees horizontally and do like a little bit of tilt, not quite a full circle. And then it was like, you know, a year or two later, they're like, all right, we're gonna go full 360 now. So. That's the 360. <laughs> I do remember kids are like pressing the stop button and getting off and being sick. It, it was like, yeah, it was yeah, probably more trouble than it's worth for the operators. I mean, that's why we don't see our 360s everywhere. I don't know. Well, there's another machine I remember as well. I'm not sure if you've come across this on, on your travels or you remember it from back in the day. Um, I think it was Sega did this, a game called Time Traveler. Yes. And that was like a hologram. Yeah, it's a laser disc game with a holographic aspect. I actually just played that not too long ago as well uh, up at uh, Galloping Ghost Arcade. And um, yeah, totally bizarre. I've been looking into the history of that one a little bit. Um, but yeah, really, really fun laser disc game. Kind of operates, I guess, the way you would say a Dragon Slayer does. Same kind of concept. It's a laser disc, and there's you know chapters that you know when you control and hit the buttons right, skips to to show you know, the next step of the gameplay. Um, but yeah, that thing is just, I mean, and, and when that came out, it was also math. It's just this giant hulking machine with this like bubble, like screen on it. It looks like, it looks like something from the future, even today. You're like, what is this thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing that and like in a darkened room and like everyone was just crowding around it, looking at it. So we'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah, I'd love to touch on Laserdisc games too. That's something that a lot of people don't think about is a short, strange kind of period in arcade history, but a really exciting one. And, you know, of course, people are still talking about Dragon's Lair today. There's a whole bunch of really strange Japanese ones that never made it over to the States. And um, some of them even involve like outtake clips. Like they would take outtake clips from Japanese TV shows, right? Where they would have like space battles, you know, Gundam type things or whatever, and like recycle them into a video game. <laughs> it's like that's good use of resources there. <laughs> and, and, and Mad Dog McCree, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just found a working one of those not too far from here in Pennsylvania. And I'm like, 
that's money. There's an Amiga running those too. (laughs) Well, talking of kind of those shooting games, they were really connected with the old school amusements and uh, they they got crazy, didn't they, by the end? I remember you mentioned Mad Dog McCree. I remember Crime Patrol as well. And then later people had like House of the Dead. Uh, There was shotguns and Uzis. (laughs) You know, it it, it got mad. Silent Scope being probably the uh, peak. Yeah, yeah, love them all, and yeah, you can. It's it's it's. What'll be cool is how we can trace the evolution of basically the same kind of game as it goes through different iterations. That's something I'm looking really looking forward to doing. Like you know, let's take a driving game concept and we can shuffle through the different games and show the gameplay basically being kind of the same as it evolves through technology. I think that's something that's going to be really fun. We're talking about driving games um, in your teaser. I did spot you in a Ferrari, <laughs> a nice red Ferrari. So did you do Outrun in real life? <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's that's good old John Torrance there and and a model that we hired that we wanted to kind of like rip off this whole idea of us Outrun, you know, type of visual theme. Um, yeah, you know, John also had an amazing collection of antique and, um, you know, more modern exotic cars that we got to hang around and drive. Yeah, it was like real life outrun there. And I had good old Amiga Bill with me shooting that stuff. He's a real pro hanging out the back of vans trying to get these, you know, chase type shots <laughs> for the film. Cause yeah, we want to, that's the thing. We want to kind of bring these games to life visually. Do you understand? Like we want to bring the games to life, you know, with, with people and, and, and real objects. And then we want to bring the arcades to life visually. So, you know, let's say that we're talking about, you know, the pinball craze, right? You know, we'll we'll have scenes that are set in the 70s at places like uh, like a roller skating rinks, you know, to get some real interesting B-roll to supplement the film, you know? We want to put you in arcades in different times and bring the games to life in some visually creative ways. So that was kind of me toying with that outrun idea. And we want to do that for a few games, you know? That they could they could kind of have this like whole storytelling aspect to it. Well, arcade competitions like back in the days were absolutely huge, and uh, lots of films like at the moment, Pixels and stuff. They had kind of references to these old competitions and Wreck It Ralph and stuff. Are you going to be covering these in the uh, film? You know, this this bound to come up. Of course, you know um, the film that inspired that I say really got me off my butt to start making documentaries was Chasing Ghosts. You know, which explores those um, arcade champions of the early 80s. And, um, yeah, you know, that that whole scene with um, when you say, the you know, the ref. <laughs> sure you guys know who the ref is. I actually I bump into him every now and then at these conventions. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'd like to touch on that part. I do feel like a lot of that's been explored, you know, with King Kong mm-hmm. already. And, and that whole thing, you know, like that's not a central point of the film. But, like, I could see having Billy come in for a little cameo. <laughs> Billy Mitchell, maybe. If you guys know, yeah. Oh yeah, we've talked about Billy on the show. We had Walter Day on actually last year as well. I mean, like, the whole Twin Galaxy. I get to see like we don't. It's like we don't expect him at all. It's like all of a sudden, dun dun dun. <laughs> well, we had Walter Day on last year. I mean, the Twin Galaxy story. I mean, like you said, there has obviously been a couple of films done about that. Um, but it is very interesting the rise of competitive gaming too. I mean, so that is something you're going to be touching on in in, in the film as well. Yeah, that and, and uh, you know, pinball, they still have pretty intense competitions for that, too, which, uh, you know, seem to be actually getting bigger and bigger. 
you know, and that's something I didn't know about till I started recently. I mean, they're still having these big pinball competitions and there's more interest all the time. Of course, we have, you know, we have to cover that stuff because I think competition is, of course, part of the story. You know, like that's one of the things that that brings you back to the games. You're trying to either beat the computer or beat your, you know, human opponent. Seems to me that we're going to have to, right? Well, are you kind of just covering American arcade culture or will you be covering like the difference with, say, Japanese arcades? You know, it's it's kind of budget depending. We really, of course, want to go to Japan. Like I'd like to do a whole Japan shoot and, you know, explore their arcade culture and history. You know, you know, pachinko parlors. You know, I could see like kind of similarities how they've had their own evolution of arcades. Um I don't know much about the state of current Japanese arcades, but every once in a while, like Jason Scott posted a picture about a year ago of this Japanese arcade machine that was this giant. I mean, it basically it filled a room, right? And it was a horse racing video game where, uh, you know, they had like 10 tables for different betters. And they're all like in this like room size arcade machine setup thing. I mean, it was like, what in the world? You know, when I see stuff like that, it's like, of course we have to get Japan, you know, like um, that's one of the interesting things about the Sega story is a lot of people don't know that Sega is actually, you know, like a contraction of the words service games. Mm. And that that that's that goes back to the American military service station in post-war Japan. Um, Sega is actually start out as an American company where these um, guys were manufacturing games for, you know, the service members who were stationed over there uh, for their leisure time, right? And so at some point, Sega becomes a purely Japanese company. And so I think there's a – I'd love to see, you know, the, the Japanese side of the story be told because I think it's a symbiotic relationship. And, of course, you know, hot games always been coming over here in Japan, you know. To, to still to this day, it's like the countries are obviously connected in that way. You know what I mean? We have to. We have to. I still get a bit envious when I see online. So there is actually um, certainly more than there is here in the UK, more of a, an arcade scene still in Japan. You know, there are still a lot of arcades with new games in and uh, they seem a lot more prevalent than they are over here, certainly. Yeah, I hope that I hope that I hope it continues to grow here in the States. I see I see kind of a resurgence. Who knows how far it'll get. But I mean, for me, I'd rather have it be like that because arcades are they're still everything to me, man. For Love us, them. it's it's kind of changed a bit. The arcades around here, a lot of uh, token based games when before it was really just to play the game rather than win tokens so right, we're, we've right. got a bit of a balance a, we've got a mix going on here in the states right now like there, there's places like that you know um uh some of the the larger game centers where a lot of them are what we call redemption machines right yeah where you're you know you're just trying to like get tickets or pri you know to get prizes but then we've got the barcade scene where it's um you'll see a whole mix of you know retro um you know, video games all the way up to stuff that's modern and they'll even, you know, throw a few consoles in there sometimes. And then, you know, there's um, there's arcades that are just totally out of the box. What, right now, the, the way it goes here in the States is um, you pay admission to enter the arcade and you don't you don't pay to play any of the games. They're all free. So that's the model that they're starting to follow here in the States. You just pay an admission fee and you get to stay for like, you know, hour long blocks and then you just play all the games you want. It's really cool. Yeah, there are a few places like that over here. Um, but again, I mean, like you said, they've only really been established in the last couple of years. So I guess there is a resurgence in that. But I think that's a good way of doing it because when you were a kid, I mean, you'd have maybe like, you know, a certain amount of money. You'd, you'd put it in and then, and then your game would be over, wouldn't it? And that's, uh, 
you know, you'd have the pressure to try and get your money's worth. Whereas if you, it's a bit more relaxed now, I suppose. Yeah. And, and also there's a legal aspect too, because once a game is, you no longer insert actual money into it, there's different licensing and taxing, you know, uh, regulations that apply. So once that is no no longer a coin operated vending machine or you know or or, or you know any kind of cash transferring forth it, it's, it's a whole different set of rules for the arcade operator and it's much easier for them to operate under that model so that's another reason why it's happening here and I guess there's kind of huge collections of arcades and rare machines hidden everywhere because uh, with the invention of eBay and stuff, I get people are getting these huge units delivered to their houses and stuff. They are, man. Yeah, I've got friends online that are this guy, Brett Butler, cool guy. He's part of the film and he's just traveling all over the United States right now delivering um, games to people that want him. He's doing is like he'll do like a route through the Southwest and he'll go on Facebook. or like, all right, who needs who wants a game picked up? I'll go get it. And he'll <laughs> he'll make stops along the way to deliver these arcade cabinets, man. It's so inspiring. We, we, we got to save this stuff, you know, because um. Is this stuff only becomes much more interesting, and cooler to look at the older it gets. And um, one one thing I've discovered from making this film, the really old vintage arcade stuff, a lot of that is being shipped off to China, because China is such a fan of um, you know like uh, American history and American cultural stuff that they've actually started snapping up all kinds of vintage arcade machines. Um, a guy that I'm dealing with, his name is Ricky Sky. He wheels and deals all kinds of, um, you know, vintage arcade machines. And he's, you know, packing up giant shipping containers that go to China. And they're, <laughs> wow. they're off to Shanghai. It's pretty wild. <laughs> I think that's the thing, though. It's like, I mean, it certainly is mine. I think it's every video game fan's dream to have an arcade at home, isn't it? And have the cabinets there, the actual ones. Yeah, part, part of the reason I'm making the movie is that I'm looking for an excuse to build an arcade in my yeah. house. So, <laughs> Yeah, I want Time Crisis too, but uh, my fiancé won't let me have that in the living room. <laughs> so, Zach, wh when do you think the movie will be out then? I know it's uh, you've got a lot of work to do still. Any any kind of goals in mind? Yeah, we're, we're hoping about two years from now I mm -hmm. think would be great. Uh, we want to wrap shooting the end of uh, next year, and then we could have another year to finish up. Right now, you know, we're, we're looking for support, uh, quite honestly. Yeah, we've got, you know... We've got things to offer people in terms of, you know, like a, a sponsorship opportunity in the form of, you know, of a, a helping out with the documentary. Um, anyone that, that wants to help out with the film, they can contact me, Zach, at rocksteadymedia.com. Um, we, uh, we've just got an investor in who it looks like he's going to be able to cover the Chicago shoots. So that one's a go. But after that, I'm going to I'm going to have to keep on scrambling. We're um you know, we're, we're looking to get the the shoot, shooting funded without doing any kind of real crowdsourcing. We're just trying to get it done with a handful of individual investors. And then, um, yeah, we, you know, we might uh, consider doing a crowdfunding uh, for the, you know, for the finalization of the, you know, of the project is, is, is what we're thinking right now. And you have got a website, ArcadiaTheMovie.com. ArcadiaTheMovie.com. And that, that, you know, we, we've neglected that a little bit, but we've... Um, it basically it it guides you over to our Facebook. If you join if you join us on Facebook, that would be amazing. And on Facebook, that is Arcadia the movie. Cool. So yeah, go and take a look in there because there's a whole lot of cool stuff to look at, including the teaser trailer and just little little posts we've been doing to tease people and keep them interested. But yeah, we we'd love to build that Facebook group because um you know it's just it's people's chance to you know. 
see the behind the scenes and the development of the film, which I think is really fun. Well, I think it's a great subject to cover. I mean, you know, arcades are where it all started for all of us, aren't they, really? It's, uh, everyone loves arcades. Yeah. It's into video games. So. Yeah, and, you know, just, just like the Amiga, I think there can be multiple films about it, and, you know, you get you get something completely different out of each one. So I, I, I imagine we'll see more of these coming out because <laughs> it's, it's a hot topic right now. It is. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us again. We'll keep in touch, and uh, good luck with the filming. Cool. Thanks, guys. It's great talking to you as usual. Mm-hmm.